This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, writers, psychologists, characterizers, and spelunkers of the deep and sometimes dark and ill-behaved human soul. I'm Grant Faulkner, Executive Director of National Novel Writing Month, which, depending on how you look at it, might just be responsible for more atrocious acts in the world than any other organization on the planet. Atrocious acts on the page of a novel, that is. And I'm here with my co-host, Brooke Warner, who is familiar with atrocious acts on the page as well, but, but usually real atrocities conveyed through memoir. And I'm mentioning this because atrocious acts and bad behavior are at the center of storytelling, of course. As you know, as much as we might root for a character, we're also titillated and drawn forth by that character's conflict, bad behavior, and perhaps even downfall. And all of this is on my mind because Ben Perkert is our guest today. And when I first heard from his publicist, I wasn't sure about his new novel, The Men Can't Be Saved, in part because it deals with toxic masculinity, which means there are plenty of unlikable characters in the novel. And since I try to avoid toxic masculinity in my real life, I just wasn't sure if I wanted to essentially invite it into my life in in any form. But then the more I read about Ben and how he's a poet and how he manages backdraft, a series on revision for the literary journal Guernica, I started to think that a novel that dealt with the worst of men and the question of how men can grow beyond their conventional bad behavior could be really interesting and necessary in the right hands. And one of the questions for me, though, Brooke, was how much time I wanted to spend with these badly behaving men. If I'm going to spend time with a character I actively don't like, I need them to be compelling in some way, uh, meaning that they have to be sympathetic enough or charming enough or smart enough or just something. And, you know, when I set out reading the novel, it made me wonder about that balancing act of likability and unlikability. So I was wondering if you could set the stage for this discussion with some of your favorite unlikable characters. Oh, it's such a good question. Uh, But the ones that come to mind are not actually ones I would say are my favorites, but rather most memorable. Uh, Because I actually read, not watched the movie American Psycho at way too young an age, by the way. (laughs) And he is so, so awful, but also so, so memorable. Uh, I was thinking about Humbert Humbert and Lolita, similar. Uh, I read that book when I was 19, living in Paris, and he is a truly unlikable person. I mean, a pedophile who's someone that you dislike, but also that you definitely at times don't know how to feel about, which is intentional and, and good if someone's trying to deal with a complex character who has unlikable traits. Uh, and then sometimes they're these terrible villains in fiction. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe in nonfiction as well that you have mixed feelings about. Right. Um, and others, not so much. And I wanted to, I guess, 
recall or evoke that when I drove across the country in 2020 in an RV with my son from California to New York and back, uh, I listened to Helter Skelter on the way out and Devil in the White City on the way back. And I've tried not to ask myself what's wrong with me that those are the books that I chose because I just centered on these totally murderous uh, antagonists. But I also know that true crime is one of the most popular genres out there. And I'm hardly unique in being obsessed with those kinds of stories. But needless to say, the men at the center of those stories, uh, Charles Manson and Helter Skelter and H.H. Holmes, who was the mass murderer in Devil in the White City, uh, you know, for sure suffered from toxic masculinity <laughs> yeah i think they suffered from toxic masculinity and more yes and i have to admit that i haven't read lolita it's a huge gap in my reading um but i just recently read an essay about it and i really wanted to read it in light of this very topic because humbert humbert you know obviously does horrible things he's a pedophile yet i know that on the page he's working to be charming and witty and smart you know which is the perfect unlikable character you know because he's compelling and drawing you in yet repellent in other ways mm-hmm. and two, two of my favorites come from the kind of first literary novels i read when i was young i i think rest kalnikov and crime and punishment is a model for an unlikable complicated character and and then dorian gray and the portrait of dorian gray and the reason i mention these two is that i'm i'm just so captivated by them and i'm i'm still captivated by Raskolnikov's feverish mind and all of his contradictions and the way he could be tender yet murderous in almost the same moment. And I'd have to read the novel again to truly pinpoint why I essentially liked his unlikability, but off the cuff, I'd say it's because he was he, he was just so passionately seeking answers and so lost. So I rooted for him as a reader, and I think that that applies to, to Ben's novel as well. I, I, I actually didn't want him to get caught in the end. And then I loved Dorian Gray because of his stylishness and panache, but he, but he was, you know, under that, he was essentially a, a narcissistic aristocrat who's, you know, used his handsomeness to, to mask the ugliness of his soul. And he's actually so obsessed with his own image that he, he not only causes his lover to commit suicide, but also decides her death adds color and drama to his own life story. So talk about self-involved. Yet I liked him actually because he was self-involved or that intrigued me. That's interesting. I think that some of the characters that you share are a little bit more, uh, or rather, I should say less evil than some of the one I chose, but I appreciate you bringing a balance there. Yeah, it's true. I I guess there are just all sorts of unlikable characters. They don't have to be murderers or pedophiles. And and we all have different tolerances for characters, flaws, of course. And it's this balancing act of likability and unlikability that that I'm interested in exploring. And, And this makes me think of the book Save the Cat which is a popular book for writers and especially for screenwriters. And and the author Blake Snyder's main piece of advice is to save the cat, which means that writers should introduce their protagonists by having them do something that demonstrates their, you know, their key traits or moral, co- moral code, which sometimes means that, you know, the character uh, does something to make the audience like them, like, like saving a kitten from a tree. So we relate to them sympathetically before they do all their horrible deeds. So his point is that likable protagonists engage the audience by making it easier to relate to their personalities and struggles. Um, the more we root for a character, the happier we will feel when they accomplish their goal and the sadder we'll get when they don't. Whereas unlikable protagonists, by contrast, risk alienating their audience Uh, Except that I might argue that when constructed well, supposedly unlikable characters can be more gripping and memorable than likable ones, as you mentioned uh, with your favorites, uh, Brooke. And I I think the question of unlikable and likable questions, um, it goes beyond the reading experience. Several years ago, the, the question of unlikable characters created a big discussion with women writers. 
in, in a publisher's weekly Q&A uh, with the novelist uh, Claire Massoud about her novel, The Woman Upstairs. The interviewer critiqued the novel by saying that she she wouldn't want to be friends with the main character, Nora Eldridge, because she was an angry character and her outlook was, you know, almost unbearably grim. And that angered Masood, who answered, for heaven's sake, what kind of question is that? Would you want to be friends with Humbert Humbert? Would you want to be friends with Mickey Sabbath, Salim Sinai, Hamlet, Crap, Oedipus, Oscar Wow, Antigone, Raskolnikov, any of the characters in The Corrections? Any of the characters in Infinite Jest, any of the characters in anything Pynchon has ever written, or Martin Amos, or Orhan Pamuk, or Alice Munro, for that matter. <laughs> <laughs> if you're reading to find friends, you're in deep trouble. We read to find life in all of its possibilities. The relevant question isn't, is this a potential friend for me, but is this character alive? And so Masood went on to say that she thought this was a question that was gendered, that women get dinged for writing an unlikable character, just like Hillary Clinton was dinged anytime she was angry as a political candidate. So I wanted to, to get your take on this, Brooke. Is there a bias at work that goes beyond the page in terms of characterization of all things? I mean, for sure, right? We we know that to be true. Um, and people on our podcast have spoken to that, you know, directly in terms of having their own experiences with it. I love that response from Asud. Like, was that just off the cuff that she spoke that? Yeah, it was. I, I mean, <laughs> I wish <laughs> that I had that kind of encyclopedic mind that I could answer like that. It's just like so cutting. But I, I feel like deserved, you know, if if you're in a place where you're just getting these sort of inane questions from people from time to time. Um, you know, obviously, women writers are held to a different standard than male writers. Um, but that's just like a very specific angle, right around whether we need our characters to be likable, or whether we need to be friends with the characters on the page. And I, I think it's true that men would be far less likely to get that kind of question. I was thinking, I was remembering this actually about Liz Gilbert's City of Girls, which I was trying to find the review and I couldn't, but a reviewer had written that Liz's protagonist would not have liked Liz's character in Eat, Pray, Love. And it was a big review. I mean, it, it must have been, it wasn't the New York Times because I, I looked, but it's something comparable. And I just thought, what a weird comment and so very meta, you know, the notion that like a fictional character wouldn't be compatible with the real live person in a memoir context. And it's just really hard to imagine someone saying that about a male author, like a character in Tobias Wolff's fiction wouldn't like Tobias himself in a boy's life, you know, so <laughs> I don't know. But then there's a counterpoint, which bears mention because around the time that that happened, Jennifer Weiner, in reaction to Masood's comments, uh, was cited in Slate. And I'd love to hear your take on this, Grant, because, uh, of course, what happened here is that Masood's comments stirred up a lot of controversy. So Jennifer then writes, and I am going to quote from her, as a writer whose main characters have been both praised and criticized as likable, I had a complicated reaction to Masood's rage. Uh, Masood sounds so fierce, so unassailably correct in her assertion that if you're reading to make friends, you are doing reading wrong. And then she goes on to, you know, talk about characters who she does feel like are her friends. Uh, and she says, I don't care if it's supposed to be wrong. I will freely admit to reading books to find friends. I did it when I was young and friendless. I do it now that I'm adult. And and she's kind of going off on this critique, you know, and I, I think it's an interesting one because it's a counterpoint, but I'm curious what you think, Grant. Yeah, I definitely think she brings up a really good point. And I think she's right. You know, there's there's nothing wrong with searching for a friend in novels. There, there's nothing wrong with, with 
intending for your main character to to be a friend to readers and and, and i do think that there's a bias at work between especially between actually beyond the, the gender um bias uh just between literary fiction and commercial fiction and and mm-hmm. i think that that really comes from a place of snobbishness i was i was this was making me remember that that i was once on a panel where where a panelist uh critiqued a number of songs uh that were just purely happy <laughs> and 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 I challenged on him on that, and he claimed uh, that that those happy songs couldn't be esteemed as highly as like sad songs or melancholy songs or songs about struggle. And I just thought that was so wrong um, because because happiness is just as important of emotion as as sadness or melancholy, and it can be even just as complicated. So just because a song or a story makes us feel good shouldn't lessen its value, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And the thing that strikes me about this whole Masood Weiner conversation or, or reaction is that it's not a zero sum game. They were both right. You know, it's mm-hmm. frustrating for women writers to be confronted with a comment like that on the one hand. And Jennifer Weiner is writing, as you said, commercial fiction, what people still call chick lit. And so it's a different orientation to the work. Um, and so that's all. I think that both of them are right. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, we're peacemakers, Brooke. Um, yeah, we really are. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think that this discussion presses the issue of, you know, who we essentially befriend in novels. And I suppose I don't want to have dinner with Raskolnikov in real life, but I do want to spend time with him on the page. And, and these complicated and dangerous figures on the page can be a type of friend, I think. And and I should notice that some of my friends might be considered unlikable characters. And, and I like to think that we're actually all unlikable in some ways, of course, because that's part of being human. So you're right, Brooke, to question the, the dichotomy. What I read for when I think about it is really just complex characters, characters with contradictions and nuances and counterpoints, characters who can be both reasonable and unreasonable. You know, if if, if we were 100% likable all the time, we'd, we'd be more perfect than Mary Poppins, which would be pretty scary in real life. And I'm not sure if I want to have dinner with her either. <laughs> so, <do> not. <laughs> so, so maybe likable is the wrong word. You know, the best novels don't cater to likability. I think that's key. And, and the best characters may be flawed, but they challenge us to be interested in them, you know, in a profound and even spiritual sense. Um, I like this quote by the 19th century novelist, George Eliot. She said, if art does not enlarge people's sympathies, it does nothing morally. Yeah, what a great quote. Uh, I love it when I feel sympathetic for complex characters, uh, even sympathetic for unlikable characters. And, you know, I was thinking that's certainly the case with a lot of fiction where the protagonists are fools rather than villains. And I was thinking about Ignatius J. Riley and A Confederacy of Dunces and even Bridget Jones. And they're not, I mean, they're like, they're likable and they're not because you're kind of frustrated with them, but they're delightfully kind of frustrating, in some cases, idiotic, right? So like, there's just a lot of characters in fiction that are fundamentally flawed. Um, And it can be about their circumstance, it could be about traumatic pasts, whatever the case might be. And a great writer should be able to support us to see how they got that character to be uh, so flawed in the first place, right? Because life is really hard and things are stacked against us. And I think fiction helps to cultivate our ability to love the unlikable and to care about those whose circumstances and choices have put them outside the boundaries of care. I think that's an important notion. So in an ideal world, you know, those sympathies would exist to real folks in our real lives too, hopefully. I think that's it. And that's what Ben Perkert does in The Men Can't Be Saved. His protagonist might make bad choices and do bad things, but we can enjoy being with him because he's he's on a search for himself. 
and it's that search that is likable. Um, it reminds me of a quote from Carl Jung that I that I sometimes used when talking about my book, All the Comfort Sin Can Provide. An alcoholic is just a seeker who got on the wrong path. Another good quote, Grant, from the... Um... From Grant's Quote Warehouse. Yeah, I was going to say the deep storehouse of Grant's <laughs> quotes. Uh, so we're going to hear more about the different paths of characterization and likability and unlikability from Ben after this very short break. Welcome back, everybody. I am excited to talk to Ben Perkert, who has just published his debut novel, The Men Can't Be Saved. His writing has also appeared in The New Yorker, The Nation, Poetry, Plowshares, Kenyon Review, Tin House, and elsewhere. His poetry collection, For the Love of Endings, was named one of Adroit's Best Poetry Books of the Year. He is the editor of Backdraft, a Guernica interview series focused on revision and the creative process, and he teaches creative writing at Rutgers. Welcome, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. You know, I'm very curious about your novel. It's it's described as Mad Men meets Fleshman is in trouble. You know, it's a it's a novel about the search for self within the backdrop of toxic masculinity. And I'm especially interested in, in these ingredients in relation to the title, The Men Can't Be Saved. Can you tell us more about how your novel addresses toxic masculinity and if men can be saved? I hope so. You hope so? <laughs> Is that a selfish hope? As, I'm, as, I'm, as a fellow man, I'm hoping. Got it. Got it. For my brethren. Self-serving interest. It definitely is. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, that's, listen, on the one hand, that's the big question of the book, right? That's the title. Uh, the men can't be saved. It sort of puts out a, a bold claim right at the beginning. And then like any good advertisement, tries to pull you in a little bit and, and wrestle with that. I, you know, I, I'm not in a position where I can say men can be saved or can't be saved, but I am really interested, and I think the book is interested, in the question of, is masculinity salvageable and is it worth saving? I grew up with a notion of masculinity, and I think a lot of men did, not just men, I think a lot of us did, where masculinity was antithetical to vulnerability, uh, antithetical in some ways to a kind of intimacy. And I'm not sure that 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 version of masculinity is something worth saving. And so the book both tries to look deeply at that question and also poke some fun, frankly, at, at the absurdity of what, what masculinity is and its, its hypocrisy. Well, Ben, I read in a review on Goodreads where it said uh, you daringly chose to do what we're all warned not doing when we're young, which is dive into the shallow end of the pool. Uh, and the reviewer said, in this case, the danger lies in his topic, men behaving badly, which automatically conjures a familiar dilemma for readers, separating feelings about a book from feelings about a protagonist. Uh, so Grant and I have just been talking about likable and unlikable characters, and I wonder how you feel about that concept, that duality, likability, unlikability, and how they relate to creating compelling commentary on the darker sides of a character. Yeah, I love the question. I, on some level, you know, if you're not willing to dive into the pool, whether it's the shallow end or the deep end, why are you even doing this? You know, if you're not if you're not willing to take some risk as a writer and an artist, I'm not sure that you know, you're, you're necessarily going to get very far, which is not to pat myself on the back. I'm not sure that this is a courageous book or a, a brave book necessarily, but it is the book that I wanted to write. And I think that even the idea of a likable character, it presupposes that everyone likes the same thing. I'm not sure that my main character, Seth, is inherently likable or unlikable. I've talked to readers who immediately identify with him and love him, and then others who think of him as this anti-hero and they're 
you know, enjoying sort of laughing at him as he stumbles along the way. So I think part of what's interesting is the litmus test. You take a character like a Holden Caulfield, for example, and it feels to me like 50-50, like there's, there's a split in terms of do I identify with him or am I actually rooting against him? And one of the things that I've thought a lot about is that a book, not just a book, a movie too, but a book, a movie, a, a piece of art is a great way to get exposure to an unlikable person without the negative consequences that you have in real life, right? Like there's, there's that neighbor who lives on your hall who no one really wants to, to talk to. They're toxic for whatever reason. So you're going to do your best to avoid them. But you might read a book actually about their life because it allows you to get close to them and to understand them and have a kind of intimacy without, frankly, the, the downside of, of getting close to someone who has those unlikable traits. So, you know, I, I think different people will fall and different readers will fall on different sides reading my book. That's sort of the fun, I hope, is, is seeing, seeing, you know, what that fallout looks like. Definitely part of the fun and nicely put. And on, on that note, the workplace has a, a certain kind of force of character in your novel and, and certain workplaces are notorious for toxic masculinity, as we saw, especially in, in Mad Men, which I happen to, to love, the TV show Mad Men. And I read that you've actually worked in agencies. So I'm curious about how agency culture, you know, why it seems to promote bad behavior or if it does. And then I'm curious about the, the larger question of how our jobs shape our souls. I love that. Can, can I ask you, who's your favorite Mad Men character? Don Draper, of course. I mean, right. he's endlessly fascinating and enigmatic, you know, just like the great Gatsby, I think. Mm -hmm. the, the reason I ask is because I love, I mean, I, I, I love, I love that show. I love the characters, but uh, sometimes I think about my main character as a, Seth is a little bit like Pete Campbell. If you remember Pete Campbell, definitely remember Pete Campbell. Yeah. He's such a striver and he's ridiculous, but you kind of love him at the same time. But, you know, is advertising, branding, is, is the agency world particularly toxic? It's a question I've, I've thought a lot about. And I did work as a, a copywriter for a while um, at a few different agencies. On the one hand, I'm inclined to say that the most toxic workplace is the one that you're currently in. It's, it's the one where folks around you are maybe taking advantage of you or, or maybe just not treating you with the respect that you deserve. And certainly in American culture, there's a lot of workplaces like that, right? So I, I don't want to say that the agency world is singularly uh, remarkably bad on some level. I, th I think that it's more symptomatic of something larger. However, if we think about what a branding slash advertising agency does, it's all about spin. It's all about taking truth and putting a particular frame around it. And so it wouldn't surprise me then that we see, and, and the people who are attracted to that kind of work potentially, which is not to like impugn anyone, but, you know, I, I think that folks who can be toxic or maybe like to tell their own story of the truth or, or try to put their own spin on things, there might be something there, you know, and I'm not, I'm truly not trying to diagnose. And I have lots of friends who still work in that world, you know, and, and there are a lot of people who, who are wonderful and do wonderful work and find it deeply fulfilling. But I was really struck by all the ways in which the 1960s Mad Men agency culture hadn't really evolved or progressed as much as agencies might want you to think. That, that really did make an impact on me. 
That's interesting to think about. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and I appreciate that. I'm like, oh, the toxic workplace I'm currently in. It's definitely food for thought. Um, Grant and I were noting that you began this novel in 2014, a few, which was obviously a few years before Me Too. So I'm curious about how your novel might have moved from its origins, uh, like from what you knew personally to what we were going through culturally. So did your story change to reflect that reckoning? I, you know, the novel, so I wrote the first draft of this novel really quickly. I wrote it um, in just about a month or two. And then I spent almost a decade revising it. Wow. And the revisions were not, yeah, wow, I know. <laughs> That's like a pity wow, like, oh my God, this poor guy. But, I, you know, the revisions were not really to story. Um, the revisions were more about trying to get these characters to come alive. My background is in copywriting and it's in poetry. It's not as much in fiction. And so once I had that first draft done, then I needed to try to get smart about how fiction really works and almost sort of do that work after afterward. That was where a lot of the rigor came for me. So in no way, you know, was it something like Me Too happened and I ran back to the novel to make changes. And then the Trump administration happened and I ran back to the <laughs> novel to make changes to reflect some of what was going on around gender and, and abuses and politics that didn't happen. But I do think that my own understanding of the novel evolved as history has taken place and, and as I've grown and aged. So, you know, I was a lot closer to my main character in age when I started this book, he's the same age now, but I've, I've gotten older. So that gap is, is interesting to me. Ben, I'm interested in that revision process you mentioned, and especially the length of it. I too, um, I, I actually have a, a novel I spent 10 years revising and it hasn't been published. So uh, I totally understand uh, the, the length of time it takes to, to revise a novel. And, and when I think back to it, I, I think sometimes that there are all these mini eras of, of novel revision, you know, um, as you cycle through things like hope and frustration and doubt and, and more. So I'd love to hear um, more of that kind of personal emotional side of, of a long revision process like that, especially since this is your first novel and you started as a poet. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned the hope because part of me wants to say, you know, when, when was that phase? I don't remember, I don't remember yeah, the hope. It only happens for a couple hours. Everyone's yeah, <laughs> it was just a few seconds there back in, you know, 2018 or whatever. I, I, I first of all, I, I commiserate and you know, published or unpublished, any writer who takes the risk and what we were talking about earlier dives into the swimming pool. You know, I, I applaud. And I think that that is the work so much more than the actual publishing of the book. It's that time spent in front of the notebook or the computer and just trying to dig as deep as you can to get to something. It absolutely was a journey. I think that for me, you know, what was liberating was because my background, my, my MFA, you know, what I studied in college, it was all around poetry. It was not around fiction. And that freed me up, I think, to take certain risks that I might not have had I studied fiction. A lot of my friends who have gone through a more traditional fiction path, they are really cognizant of the arc. They are really cognizant of the industry, getting an agent. That, that is um, something that's drilled in. And it was both a, a, a great fortune and later on some level a misfortune that I didn't have that because in the creating of the draft, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a novelist, I'm a poet. So I, I can be free to, to just make my art and have it be messy and 
throw paint at the at the wall. Uh, later, though, you know, you, you have to make up for that gap. So it was absolutely an emotional journey. The story compelled me. So I, I wanted to stay with this character for a decade. And I think if, if I'd been less compelled, I wouldn't have seen it through. I would have gotten off the train eventually. But it, was, it, it really was a joy to work on. And I, you know, I'm now at this point where it's, it's about to be shared and I can't wait for folks. Yes, in the advertising branding world, people that I worked with and, and people that I've never met to receive the book. But I'm also just excited for everyone who is, who's interested in masculinity, you know, the, the toxicity of it, but also the potential comedy of it. Um, you know, it, it's cool to be able to share it. Well, it must have been interesting to conduct those interviews about revision with Guernica and Grant and I talk a lot about what we learn from this podcast and how it shapes our own writing. So did the Guernica series influence your writing? It did. And here's the thing. So the series is all about revision and the conceit of it was, wouldn't it be cool to get a writer to be vulnerable and share an early draft? you know, whether it was months or years before it was published. So we could, as readers, compare the early versus the final and have them talk through the process. And it's been meaningful that a lot of students and writers have, have found value in it. But the honest truth is that on some level, I did it for myself. I needed to get smarter about revision for all the reasons that we talked about. I had this, this messy, rough draft of a novel that I wrote really quickly, and I had no idea what to do with it. So... I thought, well, well, I don't think I'm going to get a PhD in revision. That doesn't exist. So what's the closest thing that I can do? Maybe if I start this interview series talking to 25 different writers on how they revise, I could glean something and I could use it. So I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of, of the work that we did at Guernica, but I'm also cognizant of the fact that on some level, I, I just needed it for myself. It's one of the best motives for a series like that, I think. Well, Ben, I want to end with the save part of your title. Uh, Seth's relationship to Judaism evolves over the course of the novel in really interesting ways. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what compels him to turn to religion and tell us more about the, the place that you've given uh, religious salvation, saving Seth and maybe men in general. Yeah. One of the things that's interesting to me is that Seth... So this is, it, it's a spoiler, I suppose, but it's a mini spoiler. You, you know it really early on. Seth is this copywriter who hits it big with a, a tagline that goes viral. And then fairly soon after he gets laid off and we see him struggle and flail pretty wildly because he has branded himself as this branding wonderkind. And once that goes away, you know, what is his identity? Who, how can he affiliate? And Judaism is, is there for him. I'm Jewish myself. I'm the product of an interfaith marriage, an interfaith household. And one of the things that's interesting to me is that being Jewish is something that is always sort of available to me. Uh, whether I'm in a city that's foreign, you know, being able to declare myself as being Jewish, you know, there, there might be a door that's open to me as a consequence. And I think that Seth, my character, he's struggling for lack of identity. He's struggling for lack of brand. And so is he going to Judaism in earnest for a kind of salvation to be redeemed? Or is he going there because this is sort of the last identity that he has left? And it's 
when his job lays him off, this is, this is something that he can't lose, right? No one's going to lay him off from being Jewish. That doesn't exist. So I, I think I wanted to, not to psychoanalyze myself too much, but I think I wanted to go here because I'm interested in why people go to religion, you know, and, and why, why do we wear certain hats at, dif- at different moments in our life? And again, that's a, that's a question for readers to answer because it, it's, it's not for, for me to say. Well, thank you so much, Ben, for joining us and uh, best of luck with your novel when it comes out very, very, very soon. Thanks for coming on with us, Ben. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure with both of you. Thank you. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. Recommend to give readers a single clue about today's trend, a spoiler to the max, social media. Yes, I know. <laughs> I'm sure to some extent people are sick of hearing about threads, but we've got no choice. We have to cover it. You know, social media is so central to the writerly experience, and this has been a major, major news story and one that I've been you know, consuming somewhat voraciously. And Brooke, you know, just so we're not regurgitating a thousand news stories on the topic and so that listeners don't just turn off the episode right now, I want to note that our commitment to tackle this topic um, comes from a very, you know, writerly, right-minded angle. So that's what we're doing. Yes, we are. Indeed. And always. Uh, Threads. Yes. Uh, Grant, you know, I mean, I just feel that I I think I feel my age whenever a new social media tool comes out because my immediate feeling is don't want to. Yeah. (laughs) So I have not signed up for threads, but countless people have. um, And as of this recording, 110 million people. I mean, yikes. Uh, So have you signed up? I actually have signed up, you know, and I, I, I did so for the exact reason you mentioned. I felt like I had to as a writer and it actually was so easy. It basically, I clicked the button and it sucked in my Instagram account <laughs> and then I was ready to go, uh, except that I haven't gone anywhere. Uh, you know, like you, I'm totally tapped out and exhausted by social media and I don't have time for one more platform and I'm questioning the need for a Twitter replacement at this point, you know, because we've tried a few of them and I don't know, maybe we just don't need one. So I might be fine with what I have. Yeah. And I think the question for writers and authors is what Threads is going to do differently than uh, Instagram. This is going to be the real proof point for the platform, because I know that uh, Instagram has alienated a lot of authors and writers and readers by basically killing the specialness of Bookstagram by prioritizing reels, which we talked about in a previous trend. So we're in a really weird place with social media because TikTok is by far the most influential place for books and book influencers but it does skew very young. And not to say that older people can't and don't find success there, they totally do, but it does have a particular kind of vibe uh, that appeals to and seems to make more sense to people who've grown up in the internet age. And that's my take on it anyway, and I'm sticking with it. Uh, And then threads, you know, what what I've been enjoying about the story and just all of it in general is that it's an opportunity to stick it to Elon Musk. (laughs) You know, that is like a total opportunistic move on the part of Mark Zuckerberg. Um, And that's what seems to be getting more attention right now than the actual user facts of the site. 
Yeah, because the user facts seem to show that a lot of kinks need to be figured out. Um, from all accounts, there's a lot of confusion about how threads will be anything other than just your Instagram account on another platform. You know, it's not yet set up to be reverse chronological order. It doesn't have some of the most meaningful hashtag searchability functions that Twitter is known for. And then there's just the meta part of the whole story that has a lot of skeptics. Um, Brooke, I know you're just more ambivalent than necessarily anti-threads, but do, do you know people who are not joining on principle? I do, because I got some emails from my authors in the first week who were expressing a few things that they don't like about uh, about it. I mean, we have a um, private uh, Facebook group as well. So some of the authors were commenting there, like someone noted it forces you to delete your Instagram account if and when you want to delete threads. So that felt a little bit to me like holding your Instagram account hostage. And there's been a lot of talk online about the total personal data travesty that Threads is because of how they're tracking you. I mean, they already are. And so it's not like something that much more major, probably if you're already on Facebook. But if you're already bothered by the fact that you say something out loud and then you log into your computer to find ads about the very thing that you were just talking about, then you're probably not going to be very stoked about what Meta is doing with Threads because it's just all about selling you stuff. So they're tracking everything. Uh, and I was reading that they're tracking your exercise habits to what you say. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think if there are still things in my life that maybe I don't want to be totally public. <laughs> um, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I might go back and see if my Friendster account is still available, my MySpace account. But um, I think this is, uh, this, this all occurred to me. This is a significant concern because Meta could essentially function as a type of social media monopoly. And, you know, it reminds me that Mark Zuckerberg once said that the age of privacy was over. And he said that way back in 2010. Hmm. So I think you know where he's coming from. Yeah. And what's interesting is like, you know, lots of memoirists are not very concerned about privacy in the first place. So sometimes writers are totally fine with that. Um, and, and then we'll see with threads because a lot of stuff has been surging and dying. You know, we saw Mastodon, we saw Blue Sky. I'm not going to be sad if Elon runs Twitter into the ground, uh, but that's a lot about me feeling some kind of sense of Scheuden fraud with him. I can't help myself. Uh, he just is a pitiful character. Mm -hmm. uh, but part of me has started to wonder if we've reached the apex of the social media glory days, Grant. I mean, like you said, I, it is a lot of ambivalence, but like Facebook is dwindling. If Twitter dies and TikTok is all about young influencers, then maybe we'll just kind of continue to tool along and it won't quite be that level of influence that social media has been, you know, through the sort of early 2000s. I've been thinking the same thing. So I wonder if there's truth to that. It's It's been interesting for me to watch social media change and then to watch my kids use of it, which is very different than mine. I think they'll never be on Facebook, for example, they barely know it exists. They love watching TikTok and, and get a lot of info from TikTok, but they don't post. Um, they're also just very sensitive to all the salesmanship and influencing going on. So, so it's a weird thing. I, I think social media will always be with us, just like TV will always be with us. But I'm very unsure about people's desire, you know, for other platforms right now. So, Brooke, before we end, uh, do you think authors are serving themselves well by getting on threads? I mean, we recently did that trend grant on data and 
the publishing industry is always going to be looking for measurable audience numbers. So the jury is out. I think it's going to need to demonstrate that it's something different from Instagramming. Uh, and then also it's going to totally be about how users interact with it if they're there and using it. So I don't think it hurts to get on there um, unless you decide that maybe someday you want to delete it and you th therefore lose your Instagram. I, I just think there's some things to think about. That's all. Yeah. Well, it's coming soon, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess so. I think that we'll know by the fall, um, you know, whether or not it's going to make an impact or not. Um, I've been personally feeling a little bit more alienated from social media, as you can tell. So I'm just going to go ahead and predict it that it's probably going to, you know, we'll, we'll know for sure very soon, like within a matter of months, if it's going to make it or break it. Well, Brooke, I, I've got an idea. Instead of spending time scrolling through social media, spend time scrolling through right-minded episodes. We've been we've been doing this weekly for five plus years now, which means we've interviewed more than two hundred fifty great authors. Um, so, listeners, please check out our archives and then be sure to listen to next week's episode because we will be back with more writerly perspectives. Thank you so much for listening. 